Welcome to the Confab. I'm Eric Felton. This is where the editors and writers of the Weekly Standard get together to talk about what's in the magazine, what's in the news, and whatever else may be on our minds. Fred Barnes is here to talk about how Donald Trump is at it again. At what again? I'll ask Fred. And then John Podhoritz and Jonathan Last are going to explain their very different opinions about the new World War II movie, Dunkirk. All that coming up on the Confab. I'm happy to get the Confab rolling in fine form with Mr. Fred Barnes, executive editor of the Weekly Standard. Fred, welcome back to the Confab. Well, I'm glad to be back. Thanks for having me. Well, this week in the Weekly Standard, you write a piece that's all about how He's at it again. What do you you mean by he's at it again? Trump. Trump. Look, if somebody in Washington, if you hear somebody say, he's at it again, you know what they're talking about. They're talking about Trump. He's done something that's that's familiar. Now, anyway, he's only been uh, a president, what, for six months, and he, and yet... uh, and everybody knows, well, he's, there's, there's been some outrageous tweet or he's done something that's completely inappropriate. You know, there, no. there, there are varieties of these things that have, have become uh, classic Trump. I mean, actually, most of the things. And the response is, he's at it again. Well, you have a helpful catalog of the things <laughs> yeah. that uh, the president is at once again. Uh, let's work our way through them. This is okay. so nicely organized. It <laughs> makes my job easy here, uh, running the confab. All right, number one, playing games. Mm-hmm. Oh, Trump loves to play games. You know, he loves to throw something out that, uh, and then change his mind the next day and and uh, and suggest something that is contrary to what uh, the policy is of his administration. And and he, he likes to he likes to fool with people. And, and this week it was taxes. Taxes, you know, uh, 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 Trump uh, sort of piggybacked on an idea of Steve Bannon, you know, his very conservative aide that was leaked uh, all around. And Bannon wants to raise taxes on rich people. In other words, raise the top rate on individual income from 39.6 to 44 percent. And uh, and Trump uh, didn't exactly knock it down. He said, well, you know, if we're going to if we're going to uh, uh, raise taxes, we're going to tax the rich. And uh, and that sort of fed this speculation, which I'm sure Trump loved um, watching it. But it was. He was playing a game, you know. I mean, it was never going to happen. And, of course, uh, after a couple of days of that, the uh, uh, the White House, uh, the Treasury Department, and the Republican leaders on, on the Hill, six men, uh, came together and said, well, here's what we're going to do uh, on tax reform. <laughs> it didn't include a tax hike. All right. Item two, inappropriate behavior. How many times have you heard, Eric— that something that President Trump has done or said is entirely inappropriate. <laughs> I mean, it just it just happens all the time. He's, and it's not always the never Trumpers or resistors who who are saying it. No, it's uh, it, it's it's anybody who's followed him for a day or two. You know, I mean, here he goes to the Boy Scout jamboree in West Virginia, and he says nice things about the Boy Scouts uh, just for a little bit, and then he goes into a harsh political speech, and here you have all these Boy Scouts and their parents there, bewildered, <laughs> bewildered, uh, and I'm. 
I'm sure I'm sure they were all muttering, that's inappropriate. And certainly that was the press response, you know, it's inappropriate. He shouldn't have been doing that. He should have been talking about how wonderful it is to be an Eagle Scout, which he never was. And one of the things you point out under the inappropriate column is the old Richard Nixon motto of yeah. not shooting down. Yeah. Trump seems to love to shoot down, to, to pick on, <laughs> on the little people, people. Who should be gnats to <laughs> yeah, a president. Of course. And it uh, and, and there's a word that captures uh, what he's doing there. It's inappropriate. <laughs> that, but he does. You know, he picks on a on a, a blonde woman, Mika Brzezinski, who's on television and on the Morning Joe show. And he just does it over and over again. He likes to do it. He clearly... Trump it's attention sees, getting. It's attention getting, but it shows he's different from the rest of the guys. Counter normative. <laughs> yeah. Counter normative. I hadn't thought of it, but that's what it is. All right. Then <clears throat> this is this next item is key to all things Trump. <laughs> Chaos. <laughs> and uh it personified this week by the appearance out of nowhere yeah. of Anthony Scaramucci. Yeah, here's Scaramucci, a guy who has uh no uh, credentials for being communications director, though that's the job that he nominally has. His real job seems to be to run around the White House like a crazy man saying, I'm going to fire the leakers. He's only fired once so far. I'm going to fire all these people. I'll fire everybody. And go on tirades yeah. on on television mm-hmm. calling in mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the epic 30-minute uh, stint with... Um, with Cuomo was, mm-hmm. was astonishing. Yeah, he's, uh, uh, I, I don't think this guy is long for Washington, but sure enough, uh, there he is creating chaos, and Trump likes chaos. You know, I mean, there uh, the stories uh, that happen about every week, well, it's chaos at the White House, he's at it again. The uh, and, and there really is chaos, at least in this sense, that it, it's uh, not organized at all at, at the White House, and it's unlike any White House I ever have read about, have covered, or even heard of. Uh, there's never been anything like this chaos that Trump seems to like. And in the midst of this chaos, this turmoil, this mm-hmm. pandemonium, mm-hmm. then Trump has a habit of making life even more difficult for his friends and allies. Mm-hmm. And this week was out of the blue— the transgenders in the military yeah. issue. I don't know any president who's ever done this, and uh, this is really a phenomenon that uh, that wouldn't happen if you couldn't tweet. But Trump's makes a makes a decision to trade to uh, to get rid of a year old policy of President Obama's uh, that allowed transgender people uh, to serve in the military, <clears throat> and they're varying uh, numbers about how many there are there. Well, Trump decides on his own, this issue is being studied, by the way, by the Defense Department, uh, but on his own, he decides, well, I don't think we ought to have them at the Defense Department. They shouldn't be in the military, so what does he do? Does he call the Defense Secretary and say, I want to talk to you about this? No. He tweets his decision that, that we're not going to have any of these transgender people at the White House, um, in, at, in the military, rather. Now, normally, when you're going to make a big decision like this, you organize your forces. You have people who can go on television and, and defend your your uh, uh, decision. They have you a have little chance to get talking points together. And you had exactly got it. You got you have to have that. You arrange to have Republican senators and House members go to the floor and say something in defense uh, of what you decided to do and announced already. None of that had been done. 
And so the LGBT lobby, which is very active in Washington, was organized. They're ready to handle any of these things, to come out. If, uh, if there's something they don't like, boy, they will let you know about it. They'll go on television. They'll give speeches. They'll get Democrats to come out and, and say things uh, uh, that they like. Uh, they were ready. The White House was not ready, but Trump didn't seem to be bothered by the fact <laughs> that they weren't ready because, I mean, he'd made his decision and, and they'll just have to have to catch up with him. And there's a little bit of inconsistency in this as well in, in Trump's takes that come along. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we go back a year, uh, a year ago when we were at the conventions, didn't Trump come out and say that he was all in favor of supporting the <laughs> rights of the LGBT community? No, you're being awfully picky. Trump uh, switches his view on something. Uh, sure. I mean, he said that. And I think a lot of people were convinced that, uh, you know, look, this guy, he's been working in New York. It's a liberal city. And he has a different view of of uh, the people who may be lesbians and gays or they've transgendered or something like that, that he's different from, let's say, the people in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. Well, it turns out he's not. And uh, and he's been obviously persuaded by some arguments of, uh, of social conservatives that he has to get these transgendered people out of the military. And so when he decides to do it, what's the first thing he does? Tweets. So he's at it again mm-hmm. and at it again and at it again. Mm-hmm. Do you have any expectation that he's going to change, mm-hmm. learn from what works, what doesn't work, and alter his behavior, or will he be at it again? He'll be at it again because these things that the press and Many of us look on as something that he has to avoid or stop doing. Trump doesn't feel that way. He's not, he's not upset about the chaos. He's not upset about being called that his remarks were, were inappropriate or that he's just playing games with people. He, he, he likes to do that. He's enjoying his presidency. You know, you'll be there. I can see you next week, Eric, and you'll be saying by Monday, you'll be saying he's at it again. Fred Barnes, executive editor of the Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining us on the Confab. You're welcome. Support for the Confab comes from Simply Safe. A lot of us get excited for summer because it means going on vacation, spending long days at the beach, or maybe taking the kids to an amusement park. You know what gets a burglar excited for summer? knowing that you'll do all those things and leave your house empty. So now is the time to protect your home. For a limited time, you can take $100 off Simply Safe's special summer package. It has everything you need to protect your home, an arsenal of security sensors to secure each door and window, a panic button, a blaring siren, and a wireless connection to authorities and police dispatch. Your family, your home, and everything in it stays safe around the clock. With Simply Safe, there are no long-term contracts, no installation costs, and no hidden fees. And 24/7 professional monitoring is just $14.99 a month. This summer, see what Simply Safe can do for your home. Get $100 off your summer security package at simplysafe.com/standard. The sale ends July 31st. That's Simply Safe, S I M P L I S A F E.
com slash standard to get your $100 off. And now it's time to talk about the new movie Dunkirk. To do so, the Confab welcomes by Skype John Podhoritz, editor of Commentary Magazine and movie critic of the Weekly Standard. And here in the studio with me is Jonathan Lass, digital editor of the Weekly Standard and impresario of the Substandard podcast here at weeklystandard.com. John Podhoritz, you found yourself disappointed in the movie. By contrast, Jonathan wrote, if you don't love this movie, then you don't love movies. So what is it, John? Are you lacking in love for movies? Well, you know, it's interesting, Eric. I spent the week before seeing Dunkirk brushing up on my knowledge of the historical event on which it was based. And it is such an astoundingly rich, uh, compressed period of time in which the stakes for Western civilization, the more you think about it, were almost sort of unimaginably high that the decision by the director of Dunkirk and the writer, Christopher Nolan, to focus so um, intensely on the ground level action on the beach to w- where the um, British and French troops uh, fighting at the opening, the opening battles of, of World War II had basically been forced to retreat and were sitting ducks, 400,000 of them. And so the movie basically focuses in on them on the beach, on a boat that comes from Dover, England to rescue people, a civilian boat, and then one airplane or a crew of three airplanes that were there to battle the German forces uh, in the skies over the beach. And it's just about them and what, what they do and what happens. And that's not what Dunkirk was ultimately about and why it was so important. It was precisely important because it was a moment of terrible disaster for the West and also, ironically, the moment of its salvation. And it is that element of the Dunkirk story that is missing from the movie, except if you listen very intensely to little bits of snatches of dialogue that reveal that Nolan knows perfectly well how, how important this was. Um, it's an amazing thing to watch, but it fails to do justice to this astounding historical event. Jonathan Last, does Dunkirk miss the forest for the trees? No, I, I don't think it does. John is right that it is a pointillism—it's funny. So it's an epic movie told in pointillism, but in a way that does not miss the epicness of it. I, I think it still tells us what's happening. But what John is complaining about is essentially that he wanted a different movie. And I get that because the truth is I wanted a different movie, too. This was not the movie I was expecting to get from Christopher Nolan. Uh, but that said, the mo- the movie Christopher Nolan decided to make for us, I think, is fantastic. And, you know, it's, it's funny, John. I would... I would sit through another Christopher Nolan Dunkirk movie if he decided five years from now he wanted to do Dunkirk again and do the grand historical sweep aspect of it. I think that would be great, too. I mean, this is there is no one definitive way to tell a story like this. I don't think he chose a way which is interesting, and he did it in, a, in an unbelievably competent and moving and beautiful way. Well, John, what do you make of that? 
Well, I mean, I, I, I don't want to give the impression that I think that people shouldn't see the movie or that it's not a remarkable feat of filmmaking. It is a remarkable feat of filmmaking. You see things in ways and from perspectives, particularly in literally staged dogfighting scenes with vintage planes uh, that are, in fact, flying through the actual clouds. Um, By the way, like I, no, I, no, no computer generated imagery there. It is right. That. Are we all just exhausted with CGI at this point? Is it totally lost, lost yes. its ability to impress and awe us? Oh, completely. You know, it's funny because, again, one of the reasons everybody should see this movie is to see what real filmmaking is when you are committed to using you know, sort of using reality as it is and shaping it properly as opposed to simply doing it inside a computer, you know, like uh, Spider-Man, which just came out a couple weeks ago. Like all these movies that have, you know, like they move heaven and earth in this astounding way to sort of depict things that could never happen and make them seem absolutely real, right? So like a, a man who's a spider, you know, fighting and throwing cars around and stuff and you totally believe it's happening while you're watching it but it doesn't but because of that the stakes are so low so when you see because it because of course it isn't happening and it's all a car it's all it's a cartoon that looks like reality and you it's not that interesting whereas if you see real things happen you know there's a quality to the reality in dunkirk even yeah. though of course it's totally staged yeah. you're not seeing a battle or, you know, a retreat or whatever. But even though it's totally staged, it doesn't have that falsity of the computer-generated image, which almost gets there. So almost I, gets there, but doesn't quite. What do you think, John? I, I agree completely about this and about how terrible CGI is and how weightless it is in ways that we don't necessarily realize as we are watching the movies, but our, we don't realize it consciously, but our brains are registering it. But the other thing Dunkirk does so beautifully is Nolan lowers the stakes. You know, I mean, we are so used to having every battle we see on film is of, you know, 50,000 of one side versus 50,000 of another side with the fate of the world being in the balance. And all the conflicts in this movie are between very, very small groups of men, you know, two planes versus another two planes. Uh, the nine guys who are in the, the commercial trawler trying to get away, the seven guys who are on the boat coming in from Dover. And I, I have long believed that when you lower the stakes, you actually increase the dramatic tension. And you increase the narrative payoff when you're telling the story. So in a way that we don't really care, it's very hard to care about a giant battle on screen that shows 100,000 people running around in ways that you can't fully register. When you have a small number of characters who you actually identify with and understand, and you are in a world where the stakes are entirely personal, it really hits the audience much, much harder. And the, the dramatic payoffs are just exponentially hard, uh, larger. Okay, except here's where I disagree with you, because I think that's where the movie is a failure. The movie's not only a failure because it doesn't depict... I mean, as I say, it's a remarkable piece of filmmaking, and it's a failure at a very high level. But um, you focus in on nine or ten people, you know nothing about them, you barely recognize them from scene to scene, they have no individuality, they, there, is, there is no characterization done of them, they are simply bodies moving through space, a couple on a beach, a couple in a boat... A couple on a plane, Tom Hardy 
the great British actor is a pilot. He has about seven lines of dialogue, and you see his eyes. I did not identify with any of them. I felt nothing for them. It did not worry me if any of them was going to get injured or die. And so he does lower the stakes and zoom in and try to make it intimate, but without making it a story about anybody that you know, that doesn't, I don't think that it has the emotional impact that it should. And I have one of the books I read in preparation for seeing the movie is Walter Lord's The Miracle of Dunkirk, which was written in 1981. He interviewed 500 people who were involved in the retreat. And, you know, there are hundreds of fantastic, weird little stories about the behavior of these guys, these guys on the beach, in the boats, you know, in the air, all sorts of other places. Very individuated, very interesting, very much lower, lower to the ground in scale. And none of them is in the movie because the movie is just about menace. It's just about this feeling of menace and danger and threat. And, you know, you could do that in any context, in any way, about almost any military event. But that is not what Dunkirk was. That's not why Dunkirk's famous. That's not why Dunkirk matters. Dunkirk matters because an army that could have been obliterated and the entire fate of the world would have been changed was not obliterated, was rescued and to fight another day. And that's really the story. Did you get so more of not, the story, yeah, Jonathan? Anyway. I, you know, I, I, I know the story of Dunkirk, despite what, what I pretend on, on in other formats. Uh, I, I have to say, I, I just disagree. I, I had a different read on the movie. I felt like I knew Tom Hardy's character very well. I cared a great deal about what was happening to him and his wingman. I cared a great deal about what was happening on the civilian boat. I do agree that the the the, the group of nine Tommies are much more indescript. And I think that that's probably the weakest of the three legs of the stool in this movie. I, I would not deny that. Uh, <laughs> I would say I am embarrassed. I only today discovered which one of these kids was Harry Styles. I had gone through the entire movie believing that one of the characters was the giant pop sensation something, Harry something Styles. Something to be proud of. And then it, somebody else pointed out to me, no, no, that, that's not who it is. <laughs> I like, oh, yeah, I great. had the same experience. I went and looked up Harry Styles' face, and this again, I'm sorry to say, failure of... Uh, I think we've demonstrated... I couldn't recognize... I was not sure who he was after I saw his picture, and I was like, oh, wait, I think he's the guy inside the boat that's mired on the beach. I think, though, we have achieved maybe what could be the perfect thing to do from from the basis of this conversation, which is go see Dunkirk and then go read the Walter Lord book and uh, and then maybe throw in John Keegan's History of the Second World War for for background material, and you do those three things and you'll have a pretty good take on Dunkirk the whole. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say that I read for the first time uh, Winston Churchill's Their Finest Hour, which is the second volume of his six-volume history of the Second World War. I'd never read it. Um, I'd actually always heard that the, you know, that that was not his his greatest work. Um, not his it is, finest hour. John. It, it not his finest Somebody hour. Somebody had to and say it. That is untrue because it is a spectacular book, and the eighty pages or so about Dunkirk are just jaw-dropping, including him, as I say in my piece in the Weekly Standard, sitting across from Marshal Patin, who would surrender France to the Nazis about three weeks later, saying, look, Britain 
you may fall and Britain might fall to the Nazis, in which case we would have to then retreat to America to fight the war further. And America might lose the war to the Nazis, in which case Western civilization would die and it should die rather than living as a slave to the Third Reich. That is a conversation that Churchill had in the middle of the Dunkirk crisis with Marshal Patin in Paris. Now, I submit to you that that is not the movie that Christopher Nolan made, and he didn't want to make that movie. But the movie that can somehow bring that in is a better movie than the movie that we saw. Because you're not going to get a, you know, you know how in, you're saying it's good to lower the stakes? Well, it's not good to lower the stakes if the stakes are actually like as high as stakes can possibly be. It's a falsity to lower, to p portray something at lower stakes. It's always that things are stakes are raised that are unjustifiably raised to ridiculous levels. Well, as I say, I would I would watch that movie. That sounds like a good movie too. I mean, he already he already made the Dark Knight, though. I mean, isn't this essentially the the underlying theme of the Dark Knight? Right. I mean, this okay. is the, the crisis this of the is liberal where, order. This and... is where your there is a degree of fanboyism in your, <laughs> in your love of Christopher Nolan, your love of, and Sonny Bunch's love of Christopher Nolan. There's a whole world of you of, know what though. Uh, I, I, young whippersnappers in your 40s. I would I like, dispute this, John, because well, I felt about Interstellar the way you feel about Dunkirk. For okay, me, it was an interesting you're, and failure. You're right. And you're right. You're right. I'm not even sure that the movie is a failure in and of itself, although I will say that it has this complicated timeline structure that I don't think works because it you it's like a puzzle afterwards. You sort of have to think about it after you've seen the movie and go, oh, so... These three settings are all taking place in different timelines, and then they kind of coincide toward the end. But I don't think that added anything to the movie, really. It's more like a discussion point that it, you know, you like sit and try to figure it out afterwards. Well, if, so, I, if, if I can interject before we go, my sense of the ultimate Dunkirk movie, Mrs. Miniver, 1942, don't miss it if you need you, any more Dunkirk. Okay, I thought I was a, a fuddy-duddy, but that <laughs> just—you have just uh, totally uh, trumped me. So, fuddy-duddy trumped. Congratulations, <laughs> Weekly Standard movie critic John Podhoritz and WeeklyStandard.com digital editor Jonathan Last. Thanks for joining us on the Confab. That's it for the Confab this week. Be sure to tune in to the Confab every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription, or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.